You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 87th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. This week we're going to set the stage for the Battle of Mill Springs, which was fought between Union and Confederate forces in South Central Kentucky on January 19, 1862. Mill Springs was fought four months after Kentucky's neutrality officially came to an end, and although small when compared to the great battles of the Civil War, it was the Union's first clear-cut victory west of the Appalachians, and so was widely celebrated across the North. It's been said that Mill Springs has been called by more names than perhaps any other Civil War battle. In his book, The Battle of Mill Springs, Kentucky, Stuart W. Sanders writes that the fight has also been referred to as Logan's Crossroads, Fishing Creek, Beach Grove, Cliff Creek, the Battle of Somerset, the Battle of the Cumberland, and even more names. Although most historians seem to have eventually settled on calling it Mill Springs, it seems appropriate that there's been some confusion over the battle's name since it was a confused, mixed-up fight. The two opposing forces were mostly composed of inexperienced and poorly drilled troops, the fighting took place on difficult ground in dreadful weather, and in the fog, smoke, and rain, unit cohesion fragmented. Portions of regiments became mixed up with other formations, and amidst the hilly, wooded terrain, commanders lost track of units. The death of Confederate General Felix Zollicoffer, after he accidentally rode into Union lines, is representative of the confusion and chaos that marked the Battle of Mill Springs, which is saying something, since all battles, really, are confusing and chaotic. But before we get to the Battle of Mill Springs itself, we're going to step back and use this episode to look at the bigger picture of what was happening in Kentucky and Tennessee as 1861 rolled over into 1862, so that y'all have some background information and some context to understand just why a Civil War battle was fought out in the middle of nowhere in south-central Kentucky. So Rich and I will use this episode to give y'all that background information and to set the stage for the Battle of Mill Springs, and then next week we'll get into the battle itself. Previously on the podcast, we've discussed Kentucky's short-lived neutrality after the start of the Civil War, so you guys know about how Confederate General Leonidas Polk, at the beginning of September 1861, 
broke the stalemate when he ordered troops into Kentucky to seize the bluffs along the Mississippi River at Columbus, and how, in response, several days later, Ulysses S. Grant moved to occupy Paducah and secure the mouths of the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. Well, then, on September 7th, the Unionist majority in the Kentucky State Legislature ordered the stars and stripes raised over the state capitol, and four days later, they demanded that all Confederate troops withdraw from the bluegrass state. But in western Kentucky, Leonidas Polk had no intention of giving up Columbus, from whose bluffs Confederate guns could control the Mississippi, and over in eastern Tennessee, the Confederate commander, Brigadier General Felix Zollicoffer, advanced from Tennessee into the bluegrass state. While Leonidas Polk was an Episcopal bishop-turned-Confederate general, Zollicoffer was a newspaper editor-turned-Confederate general. Unlike Polk, though, Zollicoffer actually had some military experience, even if it was just a brief and undistinguished stint in 1836 as a militia officer in the Second Seminole War. Besides gaining recognition as editor of several influential newspapers in Tennessee, Zollicoffer was also active in politics, serving as comptroller of the state treasury, state senator, and then spending six years in Washington as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Although he opposed secession, Zollicoffer declared his allegiance to Tennessee when the Civil War broke out, and he was appointed a brigadier general in July 1861. He was assigned command of Confederate troops in East Tennessee. He was 49 years old in January 1862. Zollicoffer's mission was to counter the Unionist volunteers organizing and drilling at Camp Dick Robinson in central Kentucky, since Confederate authorities feared those enemy troops would, at any moment, move to seize the strategic Cumberland Gap and invade East Tennessee. But after Leonidas Polk violated Kentucky's neutrality in early September, it was actually Zollicoffer who seized the Cumberland Gap and sent troops into southeastern Kentucky. With Polk at Columbus over on the Mississippi and Zollicoffer to the east seizing and fortifying the Cumberland Gap, the new Confederate commander in the Western Theater, Albert Sidney Johnston, ordered Simon Bolivar Buckner to advance from Tennessee and grab Bowling Green. And so the Confederates established a 400-mile defensive line stretching across southern Kentucky. If you don't have a map handy, you can still easily picture the situation in your mind's eye by remembering that Polk held the left flank at Columbus, Buckner protected the center at Bowling Green, and Zollicoffer guarded the right flank at the Cumberland Gap. And especially for our listeners in other countries, we should probably say that the Cumberland Gap is a historic pass through the Appalachian Mountains, near where the states of Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee all meet, and it's one of the most important pieces of land in American history. It was the spot where two pioneer roads converged, and historians estimate that between 1760 and 1850, about 300,000 people went through the Cumberland Gap headed west. And control of the Cumberland Gap was strategically important in the Civil War because it could be used as an avenue of invasion, allowing a Union army the opportunity to strike south into eastern Tennessee, or allowing a Confederate army to strike north into Kentucky. 
And so after Kentucky's neutrality came to an end, Zollicoffer seized the Cumberland Gap, and not content to remain on the defensive, he advanced from eastern Tennessee into the Bluegrass State to skirmish with Union forces there. The federal troops Zollicoffer was taking on were under the command of Brigadier General George H. Thomas. Thomas was a career army officer. He was also a Southerner, a Virginian, who chose to remain loyal to the Union. He had graduated from West Point in 1840, ranking 12th in his class of 42, six behind classmate William Tecumseh Sherman. Thomas was commissioned a second lieutenant in the artillery and sent off to Florida, where he participated in the Second Seminole War. He also served with distinction in the Mexican-American War, ending his service in Mexico as a brevet major. In the years between the Mexican-American War and the Civil War, Thomas held numerous posts, including a return to West Point as an instructor in cavalry tactics and also in artillery. In 1855, he attained the permanent rank of major in the regular army and was assigned to the elite 2nd Cavalry Regiment. Other Southern officers who served with the regiment were Albert Sidney Johnston, William Hardy, Earl Van Dorn, E. Kirby Smith, John Bell Hood, Jeb Stewart, and Robert E. Lee, and his nephew, Fitzhugh Lee. In Texas in August 1860, while on patrol against Comanches, George Thomas was severely injured when an arrow lodged in his chest. To recuperate from the wound, he was granted a one-year leave of absence from the Army, which began in November 1860. It was during that leave that Thomas chose to remain loyal to the flag he had served for over 20 years, even though his home state of Virginia seceded from the Union. For that decision, he was disowned by most of his family and branded a traitor by most Virginians. At the time of the Battle of Mill Springs, George Thomas was 47 years old. After choosing to remain loyal to the Union, Thomas saw rapid promotion to lieutenant colonel and then colonel and was commissioned a brigadier general of volunteers in August 1861. On September 10th, he assumed command of Camp Dick Robinson in central Kentucky. After Zollicoffer's Confederates crossed into Kentucky and started skirmishing with Union Home Guard troops, Thomas sent the 7th Kentucky Infantry and the 1st Kentucky Cavalry to the Rockcastle Hills near London to block any Confederate advance. Those troops established Camp Wildcat, located on a mountain near the road that connected the Cumberland Gap to central Kentucky. In his book on Mill Springs, Stuart Sanders writes, quote, Zollicoffer decided to rout the enemy at Camp Wildcat before advancing into central Kentucky. With more than 3,500 troops, he marched northward. On October 14th, Brigadier General Albin Shep and the 14th Ohio, 17th Ohio, and 33rd Indiana Infantry Regiments and Battery B of the 1st Ohio Artillery reinforced Camp Wildcat. One member of the 1st Kentucky Cavalry called Shep, a Hungarian by birth and a fine-looking man, rather youthful-looking for the position, and clean-shaven, with the exception of a long, waxed mustache parted in the middle, which gave him, notwithstanding his pleasant manners, a fierce, warlike appearance. The Union troops needed more than looks, however, for the Confederates appeared at Camp Wildcat on October 21st. 
But Shep and his Federals were up to the challenge, and they fought off the Confederate attack on Camp Wildcat. Confederate casualties were probably around 11 killed and 42 wounded, while the Yankees suffered 6 killed and 23 wounded. After failing to take Camp Wildcat, Zollicoff recalled off his planned invasion of central Kentucky. But although the Confederates then fell back to Tennessee, Thomas still expected the aggressive Zollicoffer to renew the offensive at some point, so he moved his headquarters farther south and also sent Shep to Somerset to keep watch on the rebels. It was about this same time that Department of the Cumberland commander, William Tecumseh Sherman, found that he was unable to handle the stress and the challenges that accompanied high command, so Washington replaced him with Brigadier General Don Carlos Buell. And just as an aside, but it's important to remember that in the war's Western theater, while the Confederacy's huge department number two was under the command of one man, Albert Sidney Johnston, federal command in the West was split between two departments, those commanded by Henry Halleck and Don Carlos Buell. Halleck would command in the Western part of the Western theater, and Buell would command in the Eastern part, if that makes sense. Both Halleck and Buell were ambitious, and both men aspired to be named the sole federal commander in the West, but Halleck especially would lose no opportunity to toot his own horn and press his case to be put in charge of the entire Union war effort in the Western theater. Right. So anyway, first Sherman and then Buell were pressured by the Lincoln administration and the War Department to invade eastern Tennessee. You see, East Tennessee was a mountainous region with few slaves, and two-thirds of the area's voters had cast their ballots against secession in the referendum that was held in June 1861. Knowing that Unionist sentiments still ran strong in eastern Tennessee, Abraham Lincoln wanted federal troops to enter the region just as soon as Kentucky's neutrality came to an end. But the president completely failed to appreciate the enormous logistical difficulties of advancing a military force through the barren countryside and rugged terrain from Kentucky over the Cumberland Gap and into eastern Tennessee. Buell did appreciate the difficulties, and besides that, he realized that while President Lincoln had political motives for invading eastern Tennessee, there were precious few legitimate military reasons to do so. And as a result, Buell wished instead to advance on Nashville in north-central Tennessee, Nashville being an important Confederate rail link, manufacturing center, and supply depot. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Not realizing that neither Sherman nor his successor, Buell, really intended to invade from Kentucky, the Tennessee Unionists staged an uprising in early November, attacking Confederate outposts in the mountains and burning five railroad bridges. But with no federal invasion to support them, the Unionists quickly found themselves hunted down and rounded up by Confederate troops. Scores were arrested, five were hung, and the rest imprisoned. Abraham Lincoln was extremely, extremely unhappy at this turn of events, as was new General-in-Chief McClellan, who wanted Buell to advance into eastern Tennessee in support of Little Mac's own plans in Virginia. And so both Lincoln and McClellan telegraphed Buell repeatedly to urge an advance into East Tennessee, but Buell just as often replied that logistical difficulties, especially with winter coming on, would make it impossible to move or supply an army through the barren countryside and rugged mountains. Nevertheless, on January 6, 1862, McClellan sent a message to Buell saying, quote, I was extremely sorry to learn from your telegram to the president that you had from the beginning attached little or no importance to a movement in East Tennessee. It develops a radical difference between your views and my own, which I regret. End quote. That same day, Lincoln also wrote to Buell, saying that the general's explanation of why he couldn't advance into eastern Tennessee, quote, disappoints and distresses me, end quote. The president went on to tell Buell that his, quote, distress is that our friends in east Tennessee are being hanged and driven to despair. In this, we lose the most valuable stake we have in the South, end quote. With the pressure from Washington building, Buell was finally moved to comply with Lincoln's and McClellan's wishes, at least in part. Buell still intended to make Nashville his primary objective, but to satisfy the doggedly insistent president and general-in-chief, he gave George Thomas approval to advance against Zollicoffer. This move would actually kill two birds with one stone, since although Buell considered Zollicoffer more of a nuisance than a threat, he nevertheless didn't want an enemy force hovering on his left flank when he eventually moved on Bowling Green and then on to Nashville. So Thomas's advance against Zollicoffer would satisfy Washington and also secure Buell's left flank. But just as there had been a command change on the Union side between Sherman and Buell, so too was there a change with the Confederates. On November 9, 1861, Jefferson Davis gave Major General George B. Crittenden command of the Confederate forces in eastern Kentucky and east Tennessee, and so Zollicoffer was now Crittenden's subordinate. George Crittenden, who was 49 years old at the time of the Battle of Mill Springs, was the eldest son of John J. Crittenden, who had been governor of Kentucky, served in the cabinets of three different presidents, and was five times elected U.S. Senator. George attended West Point, graduating in 1832 
finishing 26th in his class of 45. After graduation, he was commissioned a lieutenant in the infantry and served in the Black Hawk War, but then resigned his commission to study law. He headed south in 1842, however, to fight with the Texans as they battled for their independence against Mexico. He participated in the ill-fated Meyer expedition, during which he was taken captive. Crittenden and his fellow prisoners were forced by the Mexicans to draw lots to see who would be executed. All those who drew a black bean would be executed. Crittenden drew a white bean, signifying he would be spared, but he gave it to a fellow Kentuckian because the man was married and had children. Crittenden drew again and picked another white bean. After being imprisoned in Mexico, Crittenden's father's political connections helped secure his release, and George then returned to Kentucky. He served again during the Mexican-American War, and although he was arrested for drunkenness, he performed well enough in several battles, and after the war, he remained in the army. By 1861, Crittenden was then a lieutenant colonel, serving in the New Mexico Territory. When the Civil War began, Senator Crittenden begged his eldest son to remain loyal to the Union. He wrote to his son, saying, quote, Kentucky has not seceded, and I believe never will. She loves the Union and will cling to it as long as possible, and so I hope will you. Be true to the government that has trusted you and stand fast to your nascent flag, the Stars and Stripes, end quote. But to the sorrow of his father, George chose to side with the Confederacy, and so the Crittentons became an example of the tragically divided loyalties of many families in the border states, as one of Senator Crittenden's sons, George, served as a general in the Confederate Army, while another son, Thomas, served as a general in the Union Army. In November 1861, Jefferson Davis assigned George Crittenden to command of the Confederate forces in eastern Kentucky and east Tennessee. Some rebel officers were unimpressed with Jefferson Davis's choice since they knew of Crittenden's fondness for the bottle. As early as the 1830s, Crittenden's father had worried about his son's drinking, and alcoholism may have played a role in George leaving the army in 1833. Be that as it may, Davis appointed Crittenden to command not only because Crittenden had more military experience than Zollicoffer, but also in the hope that the general's name would rally Kentuckians to the Confederate flag. And so by late November, Crittenden was on his way to Knoxville to assume command. In the meantime, Zollicoffer had again moved into Kentucky on November 27th, advancing to Mill Springs on the south bank of the Cumberland River about 15 miles southwest of Somerset, where Shep's Federals were still located. Zollicoffer then had around 3,500 men at Mill Springs, although many of them were unarmed and others had only old flintlocks or civilian shotguns. After skirmishing with some of the Yankees stationed at Somerset, Zollicoffer reported to headquarters that his men had crossed the Cumberland with little difficulty on flatboats that they had constructed. And then, several days later, on December 5th, without permission, he shifted his entire force over the river to Beach Grove, just north of Mill Springs, and there the Confederates set about building cabins and establishing winter camp. Even though he had the river at his back, Zollicoffer believed Beach Grove was a defensible position, 
and since it placed his troops closer to the Yankees at Somerset, he could better respond to enemy movements. By this time, Zollicoffer had a little over 6,100 men under his command and seven infantry regiments, two seven-gun artillery batteries, and three battalions and four companies of cavalry. While Zollicoffer was crossing the Cumberland and starting work to establish his winter camp at Beech Grove, Crittenden had been in Richmond, called there for consultations with Jefferson Davis. But when Crittenden returned to his headquarters at Knoxville and discovered that Zollicoffer had relocated to the far side of the Cumberland, he was dismayed and immediately ordered Zollicoffer to withdraw back to the south side of the river. Crittenden realized that if the Federals consolidated their forces and moved against Zollicoffer, the Tennessean would be in trouble with his back against the river. Meanwhile, on December 29th, Buell ordered Thomas to link up with Shep and drive Zollicoffer out of Kentucky. And so Thomas moved out on December 31st. He took with him his 2nd Brigade, consisting of the 4th Kentucky, 10th Kentucky, 10th Indiana, and 14th Ohio, as well as two regiments from another brigade, the 2nd Minnesota and 9th Ohio. Joining those infantry units was the 1st Kentucky Cavalry and also Battery C of the 1st Ohio Light Artillery. Although Thomas's force started off in high spirits, Bad weather and terrible roads soon made it a miserable march. It started to rain and then sleet, and the dirt roads turned to mud. One soldier in the 10th Indiana recalled that, quote, All will agree that the worst roads on the face of the earth at that time were between Columbia and Somerset. The mules sank to their bellies and wagons to their axles. Details were made to help the teams along, but our progress was very slow. End quote. Over the almost impassable muddy roads, it took 18 exhausting days for Thomas's force to make a march that most of the men had expected would only take them three. But finally, on January 17th, the bedraggled Federals' advance guard reached Logan's Crossroads, about 10 miles north of Zollicoffer's position at Beech Grove and 8 miles west of Somerset. While Thomas waited for the rest of his force to close up on Logan's crossroads, he sent word to Shep to send him three regiments and an artillery battery from Somerset. Meanwhile, Crittenden, worried over the situation on Zollicoffer's front, had left Knoxville and reached Mill Springs on January 3rd. Upon his arrival, Crittenden was shocked to find Zollicoffer was still over at Beech Grove on the north side of the Cumberland River. Crittenden's immediate impulse was to move Zollicoffer's men back to the south side of the river, but unfortunately the same rainstorms that made the Federals' march so miserable also made the Cumberland run especially high and fast, and so it would have been extremely challenging to withdraw Zollicoffer's force. Plus, with the Yankees now on the move, Crittenden feared an attack on Beech Grove while the Confederate force was in the process of making the difficult river crossing. So for those reasons, Crittenden decided the lesser of two evils was to have Zollicoffer stay put on the north side of the Cumberland. Having resolved to have Zollicoffer remain at Beech Grove, Crittenden then made the decision to launch a preemptive strike on Thomas's Federals at Logan's Crossroads before they could unite with Shep's force at Somerset. Crittenden knew that Fishing Creek, which lay between Logan's Crossroads and Somerset, was running at high levels due to the recent rains, 
and he hoped the stream would prove enough of an obstacle to keep the Yankees separated for another few days. Some rebel troops were still back at Mill Springs, but on January 18th, Crittenden ordered them to cross the Cumberland and join the main body of Zollicoffer's army at Beech Grove, and so for the attack on the Federals, the Confederates would have the 17th, 19th, 20th, 25th, 28th, and 29th Tennessee Infantry Regiments, as well as the 15th Mississippi and 16th Alabama. With some cavalry and two batteries of artillery, the rebel force totaled about 4,500 men. Crittenden later reported that, quote, the enemy sought evidently to combine their forces and when such a junction was made to invest my entrenchments. I deemed it proper, therefore, to make an attack before the junction could be effected, feeling confident from the reports of the cavalry pickets that the waters of Fishing Creek were so high as to prevent them from uniting, end quote. But Crittenden's intelligence was faulty because Shep, after he received Thomas's message, had already managed to send three regiments, the 1st and 2nd East Tennessee and the 12th Kentucky, and an artillery battery over the flooded creek and to Logan's Crossroads, bringing the federal numbers there up to about 4,800 men. At any rate, with Crittenden's decision to launch a preemptive strike against the Yankees, the stage was set for the Battle of Mill Springs. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Battle of Mill Springs, Kentucky by Stuart W. Sanders. Sanders' book on Mill Springs is part of the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series, which from one offering to the next is sometimes a bit unpredictable in quality, but Tracy and I think this particular volume is one of the better ones in the series, so we recommend you give it a look. You can find The Battle of Mill Springs, Kentucky by Stuart W. Sanders and all of our other book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. As we wrap things up this week, we want to thank Mike B. from Nebraska, from Lincoln, Nebraska, Peter B. from North Carolina, and Kevin F. from Texas for their donations. Thanks, guys. And we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used with the permission of Spiritwood Music. And then last but not least, thanks to y'all for joining us for this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next week when the action starts at the Battle of Mill Springs. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.